it's not just about doing Jesus things, but doing them Jesus' way. And the truth is we can, we can embrace a way that is wholly antithetical to Christ. And by God's grace, there still could be genuine fruit in the kingdom, not even kind of um, manufactured fruit of our own endeavors. That, that's part of it as well. But sometimes there can be genuine fruit of the kingdom, but it doesn't mean that we've been faithful to embrace the way of Christ along the way, that, that this fruit of the kingdom is actually congruent with our own hearts, right? And this is this is what Christ desires most for us. us to the bed, but the story isn't over yet. Kyle Strobel and Jamin Goggin wrote a powerful new book called The Way of the Dragon and the Way of the Lamb, searching for Jesus' path of power in a church that has abandoned it. They went on a journey and spoke to men and women over the age of 70, elders like Dallas Willard, Eugene Peterson, and J.I. Packer, who seem to have embraced over the long decades of their life the way of weakness and vulnerability instead of control and power. Enjoy. Well, I am here uh, with some new friends, uh, Kyle Strobel and Jamin Goggin, and they just wrote a book called The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb. And I'm telling you, this is one of those books that um, I saw so many times people would post on it, like with really, really strong, positive opinions about it. And then one of my friends, Laura, uh, came up to me and said, "You, you have to get this book. And now I'm sort of considering it honestly required reading for Christian leaders because it's so it's it's about anyone in ministry who struggles with ego, but wants to live a better way. So you guys, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jamin. Hi, Kyle. Hey, good to be with you, Steve. Hey, man. It's fun to be here. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. So um, tell us a little bit about yourselves, uh, pastoring, professoring, authoring <laughs> and um, all that good stuff. Yeah, um, this is Kyle. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm on the professor side of things with Jamin and I. And, um, and so I, I actually teach um, spiritual theology to seminary students at Biola University. And I, um, I'm on the preaching team at my church. And so I'm very much a part of the kind of church leadership world. Um, and yeah, beyond that, this, um, this project in particular is part of kind of a longstanding project that Jamin and I have been wrestling with probably about a decade now. Um, our first book, um, Beloved Dust, was the kind of precursor to this one. And, you know, the Lord's really kind of led us both in kind of unique ways to some of these kinds of questions, in particular the spiritual life. What, what is the, the way of the Christian look like? Um, how is it um, following the way of Jesus? And, and so those those are the kind of questions that really dominate a lot of my own thinking and my own work. Yeah, and this is Jamin. I'm I'm a pastor at a church called Mission Hills in uh, North San Diego County, San Marcos, city of San Marcos. And I've actually only been there uh, for about a year. I joined a, another friend uh, from seminary and kind of shared leadership there, um, but been in pastoral ministry for, um, gosh, I guess now it's been almost, uh, 14 years, 13 years. So, um, Kyle and I, 
uh, been friends uh, for for many years, and that's kind of an important probably mm. uh, backdrop to just kind of the writing and the nature of the book, and even um, kind of the journey we talk about in the book. And um, we've been friends uh, since uh, really college, early seminary years, and kind of walk through much of life's twists and turns together, and um, kind of developed through our. Our, our academic life together, but also just have journeyed with each other through uh, the Lord's formative work in our life and you know, being in each other's weddings and uh, sharing and the celebration of children being born and, and all that. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's a, a helpful backdrop to even to our relationship. Yeah, I think it's totally helpful because as you read through the book, I mean, you're, you sense that, that you sense your friendship, you sense your love for each other. And I sense the mutual desire to go on this journey that really seldom people go on of really discovering what is the way of Jesus in the world? What are the uh, unique temptations that we face as we try to do that? And that's what I'm getting out of the book so much is that there's there's a refreshing honesty about this dragon, this power dragon. So let's dive right into that. Like um, you, so you spent an before we do that, actually, this book is basically a collection of uh, your thoughts on this journey that you took with really respected, uh, wise people, people like Jean Vanier, Eugene Peterson, J.I. Packer, and others. And so uh, before we get into the dragon, tell me, uh, how was it like being around those people? And why did you choose the people that you did to learn from? Yeah, yeah, I'll... I'll kind of dive dive in here first, and then Kyle can kind of fill in the pieces that maybe I'm missing. But um, maybe some of just kind of the motivation initially to to go on this journey, kind of the sense of calling, really would be helpful to signal up front. You know, Kyle and I um, very much were uh, raised within kind of ecclesial church environments that um, were uh, really a testament to success and big. And, um, of course, Kyle growing up in the home of, of an author who was very successful within kind of the Christian world. And, but, but also both he and I growing up in church environments where we just saw, um, things being done on a grand large level. And we're we're both in church environments that were also churches that were kind of world renowned and known. And, and there was a platform that extended far beyond just, the immediate church environment we were in. We had pastors who were known by other pastors, pastors whose books were being read by other Christians outside of our church. And so uh, I think in in the midst of that, what we kind of imbibed um, was this vision of what it looked like to really be in ministry and to be a leader. And I think I want to pause and and signal, nowhere along along the road in that kind of growing up in the church world, experience for us was it kind of commended to us that this is the only way to do it or this is this is the way you've got to do it or this is the only kind of marker of success uh, in leadership or in ministry but I think that was kind of what we imbibed a bit our own and kind of how our hearts temptations for power and significance kind of grabbed hold of what we were seeing and so by the time we got then into really leaning ourselves towards a sense of calling into ministry and we we stepped into into the halls of, of seminary, um, what was up and running in our hearts very much was, was 
certainly a sense of calling to shepherd God's people, to proclaim the good news of the gospel, um, to teach scripture faithfully, to love people well. Those, those things were all there, but what was also there was a deep desire to be great yes. and to be significant. And for me as a pastor, and Kyle can speak here in a moment more specific to kind of his trajectory vocationally more in the academic world and serving the church, but for me as a pastor, most of my, my fantasies about ministry in, included something like me being on a big stage with a lot of people and very little of them had to do with sitting in a hospital room alone right. with a woman who was, who was ill and praying for her, you know? And so, right. um, there was grandiosity in our hearts. And so seminary was kind of now viewed as, as kind of our way of, of accruing the right resume to get to that place and gaining the right skill set and abilities and adeptness and knowledge to, to be those kind of men who are worthy of that kind of stage and platform. And the, the challenge, of course, with going to seminary, in particular for Kyle and I, one of the masters we did together concurrently was a master's in New Testament. And the challenge is when you re- start reading the New Testament and you're reading it consistently for study, you start reading all these unfortunate things that Jesus has to say all the time. Right. <laughs> you know, things like the first will be last and last will be first. And apart from me, you can do nothing and don't seek the seats of honor. And these are just really unfortunate statements that a didn't really little thing really called fit. the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, it <laughs> was right. just a little focus. That's right. That's right. And these, these things just really didn't fit, you know, our, our kind of our quest for greatness and grandiosity. And so I think in many ways the Lord began to stir in our hearts together through our studies and then through conversations as friends. Wow, this is, this is a whole other way of kind of envisioning what, what leadership and ministry in the kingdom really looks like. And what does it mean to actually take Jesus seriously here? Not to kind of just, you know, cordon these statements off into that kind of corner of things Jesus says that are uncomfortable that we just don't look at, right? But, but, but really attend to Christ's words here and his call. And for us, that, that, and Kyle can speak a little bit more to the specific journey, but for us, that led us to certain stages and even voices within the church that we felt like could give us a bit of a vision for what this kind of way of leadership and ministry ought to look like. And so we began to gravitate towards some of these folks that we ended up, you know, kind of sitting with in person. We gravitated towards their books. So folks like Eugene Peterson, Dallas Willard, J.I. Packer, uh, James Houston, Marva Don, um, yeah. Jean Vanier. These are folks that w- w- we began to kind of sit at their feet through their words in, in books they'd written um, to kind of catch a vision for what it might look like to actually embrace this kind of way in ministry and leadership. And Kyle can maybe narrate a little bit more of the specifics of our journey than to go see them. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it's it's interesting, you know, when when we started writing this book, when we really felt called to write it. What's hard about this book and, and we both have written several other kind of things and but what's, you know, usually, and you know this, you know, when you write a book, you, you have an idea of where it's going to go and you kind of, oh, I want to write a book on this topic and you kind of explore it and you might not know every detail you're going to say, but you know where it's going to go. Well, that wasn't this book for Jamin and I, you know, mm-hmm. we, it was very clear to us that when we started writing this book, and it's been about seven years ago that we really started it. We were like young thirties. It's like, we can't write a book on power and weakness. Like, that's absurd. Like, <laughs> what, what in the world do we, like, yeah, we, you know, sure. Yeah, we, if we've got seminary training, we can, we could engage the topics of, of scripture. You know, we can um, analyze texts. We can, you know, parse Greek. You know, we can do all those things. 
But there was a reality that we, we knew to, to kind of communicate this well, it had to be lived. And in our own hearts, there were still some question marks of what does this mean? Like, yeah, I know what it says, but what does it mean? And so along the way, we just kind of started a list. You know, who are people that we think have embodied this way? We didn't want anyone under 70. Yeah. Um, we were looking for elders or sages, you know, and, and elders in the Bible means old person. You don't need to be a Greek expert <laughs> to know that. So we, we wanted to find some old people who have lived life for decades and not just were once faithful to Jesus, but have been faithful over like 50 years. And what's interesting about the approach, I think, that is somewhat unusual is that, you know, I'm a theologian. So one way to do this would be to look at, well, what's my kind of theological background? Like who are my theological people? But that's not how we did it. We were actually less interested in, do these people even agree with each other theologically? And quite honestly, at the end of the day, they don't, broadly speaking. Right. But they agree on this. And that's Mm. what's been so fascinating is that as we sat with them, you know, we have people pretty all over the map, quite honestly. Yeah. And, and yet when they talked about the way of Jesus, when they talked about the way of power, they were kind of lockstep with one another in, in how this looks. And so, um, the way we chose them was, was based on their life and based on what they had given themselves to. And we wanted to, to, um, really kind of make the book. We wanted the book to communicate the, the journey we were on. We're not writing this as folks who have arrived. Um, you don't see us turn to ourselves as the positive example quite a lot in this book, <laughs> um, for good reason, I think. And it's, it, it really, and that isn't just like a, a rhetorical technique. Like this is, this is something we are continually wrestling with. And we wanted to wrestle through these questions with lived examples. And, um, and you know, it, it helped us in particular, you know, it, it, it really helped us see how many temptations there are. Yeah along the way and how many easier solutions, um, you know, I, even listening to Jamin's kind of narration of our backgrounds, you know, one of my temptations right out of, right when I got to college is, you know, I, I had some broken relationships in the church I grew up in. So I grew up at Willow Creek in the mega church and mm-hmm. there was some leaders in my youth ministry that ended up treating me pretty poorly. Hmm. And so suddenly I turned that into a wholesale rejection of the megachurch, yeah. <laughs> which is interesting, you know, and, and when I went to seminary, I went looking for the silver bullet model of church yes. that maybe if I could find the right model, all these things will kind of go away. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm constantly, as I'm now a seminary professor, you know, I'm constantly telling my students, look, there is no silver bullet model. Every model has strengths and every model has weaknesses. Every model has certain temptations. Every model will lead you to Jesus in certain really helpful ways. And every model will be tempted to lead you away. And so we had to wrestle with, through these very people who came from so many different backgrounds. They helped really expose us to, wow, there are so many temptations along the way. Um, and to be honest, what's one of the things that's been really interesting as now the book's been out over a month now, a month and a half or so. And you know, Jamie and I are now getting feedback. And one of the really interesting phenomena we've actually seen is that people say, well, okay, you know, you guys are kind of railing against celebrity in the church. And what do you do? You guys went and interviewed a bunch of celebrities, a bunch of, you know, and it's like, wow, that's not at all what we did. Right, right. (laughs) And one of the things that's been interesting to see in response to even the book is how, how reductionistic we can be. Um, 
and that as a church, they're actually we, we've we've no longer been able to distinguish between gurus and sages, right? Between celebrities and elders of the faith, um, as if just being known is bad. Like you know, well, people knew who Jesus was, therefore he couldn't be you know honest and faithful. You know, <laughs> and it's. <laughs> it's just really interesting though. And, and, and as I hear that response, I know in my own heart, like this is, these are the kinds of things we have been tempted with along the way. And it was really these folks and sitting with them and seeing that this was lived out profoundly. Yeah. Um, and quite honestly, powerfully in their lives that, that really kind of, I think helped us. And hopefully in the book kind of, we use these as, as kind of these folks as kind of beacons along the way. Yeah. Well, um, I, it's so fascinating that you bring up the, that quote, we don't know how to tell the difference between gurus and sages. Oh my goodness. Mm. Um, and, uh, so I love who you, I love who you interviewed. I, I, I love who you spent time with and I'm going to pull out a couple of quotes from the book. Uh, Kyle, I think it is, this is what you wrote and basically you just talked about it, but you said, I had healthy intentions to be faithful and grow in Christ, but my desire for power was stronger than those intentions. And my desire came to the surface quickly, right? Yeah. And I think that's some of the danger of going into ministry is we feel like it's a legitimate way to chase power. Yeah, um, that's right. It, you know, like I, it's it's okay for me to be ambitious because I'm being ambitious for Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, but ambition is ambition, right? And so, um, so I also want to read your quote that you begin the book with from Eugene Peterson, which mm-hmm. is where you got the title. Mm-hmm. So we follow the dragon and his beasts along the parade route, conspicuous with worship of splendid images, elaborate. Oh man, now my iPad just went off. Elaborate (laughs) and mysterious symbols, fond of statistics, taking on whatever role is necessary to make a good show and get the applause of the crowds in order to get access to power and become self-important. Or we follow the lamb along a farmyard route, worshiping the invisible, listening to the foolishness of preaching, practicing a holy life that involves heroically difficult acts that no one will ever notice in order to become simply our eternal selves in an eternal city. It is the difference politically between wanting to use the people around us to become powerful or if unskilled, getting used by them and entering into covenants with the people around us so that the power of salvation extends into every part of the neighborhood, the society, and the world that God loves. So that's Eugene Peterson. So can you talk a little bit more about the seduction of power in ministry and how it can so often look like kingdom work? Yeah, well, you know, this is when it's so difficult. You know, one of the one of the kind of... Um, metaphors that we turn to that I found helpful. I mean, it's damaging, yeah. <laughs> but it's helpful. They're going to understand is in Galatians six, Paul turns to the image of, of, um, the kind of classic biblical wisdom image of sowing and reaping. Yeah. And so the problem we have is that even when we have good kind of ends in mind, you know, for the glory of God, for the sake of ministry, you know, to build up the church, whatever it is, 
we can still, and this is Paul's image, you can sow to the flesh. But if you sow to the flesh, you will always reap in the flesh. And so our temptation is we think we can sow to the flesh and yet still reap in the spirit. Yep. Or we have such a superficial notion of, the, of life with God that we think that as long as we have good ends in mind, we must be sowing in the spirit. Right. And I think there's a naivete about, about that reality. In fact, it, it's quite the opposite. No, it's, it's actually going to be very easy to, to try to sow in the flesh, to reap in the spirit. And that's, you know, and, and one of the problems with that, you know, Paul kind of warns us about this when he says, do not grow weary in doing good. You know, what's interesting is he assumes that if you do good, you're going to grow weary. If you sow to the flesh, you probably won't because quite honestly, that way bears quicker fruit. And it's very easy to bear fruit that looks Christian, even though underneath Mm. it is, it is of the flesh. And so we, we really, I mean, this isn't as easy as, as people thinks in many ways, people often think in many ways, you really have to discern what am I giving myself to? And so some of the, the ways we talk about this in the book is that we talk about the difference between, well, what is your power from and where, like, where is your power from and what is your power for? Mm. And those two questions both have to be asked. You can't simply ask the from question or you can't simply ask the for question because they have to be kind of aligned um, from God for his kingdom. Mm. Um, or to use the other image or the other kind of um, terminology we use in the book is that there is a worldly sort of power, which is power in strength for control and often domination. And then there's the way of Jesus, which is power in weakness for the sake of love. And those are very different kind of power structures. Mm. Um, one is deeply humanizing and the other is deeply dehumanizing. And we often mix the two together. Unfortunately. Oh, man. Yeah, and I think I think as Kyle speaks to that, what surfaces from me and kind of my own temptations in this in pastoral ministry is we fall prey to the temptation of thinking that kind of the ends justify the means. And what tends to really solidify that approach is then the kind of assessment of outcomes that do seem to be really good. Right? Yeah. And so – if, if we can kind of analyze the outcome of our work by quantifying it and, and, and let's even move away from maybe what we would deem to be more nefarious ways of doing this and just kind of even say like number of salvations and number of baptisms. I mean, these are good yeah. things, right? Yeah. I mean, these are good things. We're not even talking about, you know, the crowds that showed up because we gave something away at the service, you know? Um, yeah. but nav press cozy, good for things. example. <laughs> the, nav, the nav press cozy, that's right. The swag. It know? always brings the yeah. crowd. Um, but but well, the, the, the real danger here is um, th- this belief that kind of these outcomes must be predicated on a, a proper kind of approach and heart orientation, right? That, that it, that, that surely we were faithful because this happened. And and one of the stories we turn to biblically in the text to kind of really unmask that false notion is, of course, this, this scene, right, in, in in the wilderness is, is God tells Moses to speak to the rock and, and water will pour forth to provide for the people. And um, we have a, a previous scene where God instructs him to strike the rock and Moses decides in the second moment that 
he's going to strike the rock again because well, it, it sure feels like he's doing more there and that worked before. So we'll take that approach. And what's incredible about this scene is the water still comes forth, right? In other words, God's still faithful to provide what he says he will provide, but Moses has been unfaithful. And so while there has been a good outcome by God's grace, uh, thank, thankfully God's providence and his grace isn't kind of contingent upon our behavior, right? right. But by his grace, he still provides water. The, the, the outcome expected and desired happens. But then we have this whole conversation in which God tells Moses, the result of your disobedience in this moment means you no longer are going to the promised land. Yeah. Wow. You yeah. know? And so as Dallas Willard says, you know, really helpfully, you know, it's not just about doing Jesus things, but doing them Jesus' way. Yeah. And the, the truth is we can, we can embrace a way that is wholly antithetical to Christ. And by God's grace, there still could be genuine fruit in the kingdom, not even kind of um, manufactured fruit yeah. of our own endeavors. And that, that's part of it as well. But sometimes there can be genuine fruit of the kingdom, but it doesn't mean that we've been faithful to embrace the way of Christ along the way, that, that this fruit of the kingdom is actually congruent with our own hearts, right? And this is, this is what Christ desires most for us. And John 15, of course, signaling this for us very clearly, right? Abide in me and I in you, apart from me, you can do nothing, right? So true kingdom fruit, is, is the result of abiding in that proper relationship of living in life-giving, dependent relationship upon Christ. And his deepest desire for us is that our hearts will genuinely be congruent and participating and sharing in this fruit and this work that he desires to do. Well, I think in light of that, you know, what's so disconcerting about that? Um, as Jamin just said, you know, if that means God can bear fruit through us, that isn't our fruit. Yes. And so... You know, that, you know, one of the biblical examples of this, I think, is, is Herod's temple. I mean, there's no way God lets Herod build his temple, right? Right. <laughs> That's just utterly impossible biblically. Right. <laughs> Herod is, you know, the pretender king of the Jews. He's an, um, he's an Idumean. There's, there's, no, there's no way Herod, the great of all people, gets to build God's temple. And yet Jesus comes and he calls it his father's house. Yeah. And... The notion that somehow that, you know, Herod was being faithful or that that was his fruit. No. And, and, you know, I think this is why, I mean, how easy would it have been for Herod to say, look, I'm the one that built God's temple. Right. Even God himself, Jesus accepted. The notion that that's somehow going to be beneficial for him or that somehow came through him is just false. Yeah. And I think in our own lives, that's, that's the temptation is that we think, mm. oh, look at the fruit that's happening. And that must say something about me. That must say something positive about me, even if we're thinking, you know, even if it is, you know, genuinely kingdom fruit, that that does not mean it's your fruit. Mm. Man. And there's a there's a necessary faithfulness and there's a necessary abiding that must take place for it to truly be your fruit. I love that. And um, I love that story of those two stories of Moses striking the rock both times. It, it, that actually was in the lectionary. That was the lectionary text last week that I mm. preached on at our little church. Mm. And what I noticed in between the two, so there's Exodus 17 the first time, and um, it it says that he Moses goes on ahead of the people with the elders and strikes the rock and water pours out. And mm. then we assume at some point later, the people catch up and they see water pouring out of the rock. And one of the things I wondered was, uh, wow, you know, Moses might have gotten a little mad that at God that, 
uh, the people didn't see Moses striking the rock and water flowing out because mm-hmm. then he would have built some credibility with the people. <laughs> and at that point, sure, he needed right. it, right? He needed right, it badly. Right, right. In Numbers 20, uh, when he strikes the rock again, even though he's instructed to speak to the rock, the people are there and they're yeah. all watching. And that's when he calls them rebellious. And, and they are, right, but so is right. he. And so I, I just found this interesting contrast between a hidden life of faithfulness. I'm going to strike the rock without any kind of fanfare. I mean, we don't even know if the people from Exodus 17 ever found out that it was him that made the rock come mm-hmm. out. We just assume, you know, but like uh, Numbers 20, maybe in this moment of power hungriness that we all have, Right. Yeah, he hits that rock twice, man. It's like yeah, right. people yeah, are gonna good. see yeah. this time. Mm-hmm. Dang it! So um, <laughs> I just think that's fascinating. Like I can find, I can see myself in that. Um, sure. I can see myself wanting the fame that didn't happen in, in Exodus seventeen, and mm-hmm. I can see myself the, in the unfaithfulness of striking the rock twice. And so. Um, that's just instructive to me. And that's what I, you guys pull out the humanity of these leaders in such beautiful ways mm. in your book. Yeah. Um, so now I remember, I, I had the privilege to spend a tiny little bit of time with Dallas Willard in San Francisco many years mm. ago. And I remember one little story. We were on break and everyone was going to the bathroom and I was um, walking in the hall right behind him and like he was humming he was just (laughs) i mean he had the Mm -hmm. most funky gentle carefree Mm. childlike uh spirit about him um and uh and that was the same with jean vanier i had the chance to hang out with him a little bit Mm. what was your experience with the spirit of some of these men and women uh, in terms of gentleness, weakness, power. Yeah. You know, that was one of the things that struck us along the way was, I think, you know, to be honest, the thing that struck most obviously was joy. Yeah. And mm-hmm. what was so interesting about that is that none of them hesitated to name evil even in the church. Yeah. But they didn't lose hope because their hope wasn't in the people in the church at all. The church the church isn't beautiful because of her own internal beauty. The church is beautiful because Christ loves her and they, they embodied that. And so even as they're naming evil in the church, Mm -hmm. they were able to just be, be so overcome with joy at what God is doing and has done. Mm -hmm. And that was helpful too, because, you know, here's, you know, Jamie and I are naming a lot of difficult things in the book and it, you know, you can sense, you know, it's easy, you know, even in our own histories, we were naming these things in anger. Yeah. We were angry about this. And, and sometimes it's just hard not to be angry. And sometimes we should be angry about some of the stuff that goes on in the church. Some of the, the abuse, some of the neglect, some of the, the power that gets wielded, but then it gets easy to take one step further and just start um, lamenting the church at all. And maybe even just walk away from the church when, when in, with Jesus as the second Hosea, we see that, that Jesus has accepted this adulterous bride mm. 
and and he loves her into beauty and that we in him are called to the same vocation, not because she's so savvy. And, you know, in many ways, um, I think my parents generation was was maybe a little too obsessed with trying to make the church beautiful for the mm. world and kind of missing perhaps where her beauty comes from. But all of these folks just emanated joy. All of them were so incredibly hospitable. I mean, we spent several days with folks. Many of these people we didn't know. I mean, um, James Houston had been a mentor to Jamin for a long time. Um, Eugene Peterson had been a mentor to me for a long time. And then Jamin was was, um, writing him letters. We both would be writing letters to Eugene back and forth. We both knew Dallas a bit. Um, I was kind of mentored by folks that Dallas mentored. Yeah. Um, several of them. And so I have this kind of, um, there's, he's kind of a grandfather in the faith for me a bit. Yeah. And so, but, but you know, the majority of them, we, we didn't have relationships with them. Mm-hmm. We're just two, two guys, you know, Hey, can we come out and talk to you about power? And we, and they were open. They invited us many times into their lives. Yeah. Um, you know, we, the, the time we spent, we spent several days with the Houston family um, went to church with them, had dinner with them, were in their home. Were, I mean, we we got to live life with them for several days. Um, Vanier brought us in and we we spent time at, at his place and he was in the middle of doing a retreat. So he, he carved out space for us. And, and so it's the kind of openness they had. Mm. There wasn't any hesitation. There wasn't any power play. Yeah. Um, you know, many of these people, one of the kind of curious things that I still don't fully know how to <laughs> internalize, I think, is that when we created this list, and you remember, we created the list solely based on people we knew. So they have to be somewhat public figures if we know them, right? Probably. And that we kind of knew embodied the way of weakness and the way of power and weakness. What was interesting is only one pastor showed up on that list, which was Eugene. Wow. Wow. Who eventually had to leave the pastorate because his um, presbytery kind of stood in the way of what he believed was true pastoring, interestingly enough. And so the rest of these folks were academics. And, you know, as I am, you know, the, the, the academy is entirely built on power. Yeah. It's, it's built on posturing, on impressing others, <laughs> on um, not just publishing, but publishing in the right places, right? It's built on names, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's very similar to kind of magical kind of worldviews from the ancient world, like the, the power of names, <laughs> Yeah. becomes becomes quite important, you know, and you want the right name of the right university and you want the right endorser name and you want, you know, so all this stuff is built. In. And so usually if you're around other academics, it's very easy to fall into this kind of posturing. At no point did we feel like that among these people, most of whom were academics, right? Um, at least in their training, you know, Jean Vanier did his PhD. Marva Dawn has her PhD from Notre Dame under Yoder, for goodness sakes. Like, yeah, these are really impressive folks. And at no point were we chatting about those kinds of things. Mm. At no point did I feel like I've got to prove to them I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And that's usually what happens in academic circles. And so mm. it's in the, the what these people emanated was really love, was vulnerability with us, hospitality, joy. Um, and again, that those aren't things that, that those aren't techniques you develop, you know, to kind of, 
um, impress people and make friends, right? It's, it's the five it steps to impressing <laughs> yes. the people that are around you. Be joyful. Be That's kind. Right. That's right. Yeah. Well, I think I think too briefly the coupled with what Kyle shared, what what did stand out to me as well as as he said that they, they didn't hesitate to name evil even within the church and to name it as evil. Yeah. Um, we can talk more specifically about that if you like, but I think what really gripped me in each of these conversations, even, even as we would have those kinds of discussions and um, about abuses of leadership, about kind of toxic power um, and how that's affecting the lives of, of churches and kind of, and, and for us at least kind of, having an impact on kind of the evangelical landscape with at least within the U S and church life, there, there was this persistent tone of compassion yeah. and empathy. And I think what that was born out of was, was a continued uh, attentiveness to their own weakness, to their own ongoing temptations with power, even at the stage of life they were at. And this is, you know, one of the questions we were asked kind of early on when the book kind of was released was, okay, so you identified these sages and these are folks now in their 70s, 80s, and 90s who who you you say have kind of really embodied this way of power and weakness and demonstrated it through their life. And, and the answer is yes. And so, well, so they kind of, they're the ones that have arrived. <laughs> and the answer is no. And that's precisely why they're sages. They they're finishing well because while they have embodied this way in many ways and embraced the way of Christ and yes, can serve as kind of models for us along this journey, right? Just as kind of Paul says, imitate me. These are folks who can rightfully say to Kyle and I, imitate me, right? And there is a truth to that, but yet at the same time, there's a willingness to acknowledge. And I can distinctly remember in each conversation moments where each of these sages would turn and say, boy, I'm still learning this. And now in this season of my life, you know, with, with J.I. Packer, as we're walking down the sidewalk to go to his favorite coffee shop, and he's talking about how he's learning anew and afresh what it means to trust in Christ amidst his weakness as he's having to deal with having a recent hip surgery and physical limitations he's never faced in his life. Or uh, James Houston and his wife, Rita, who at the time was wrestling with dementia and the effects of that in her life, and they were wrestling through kind of the impact of old age settling into the limitations this this now meant for their bodies and even their minds. And and talking about this is an opportunity for me to discover even in deeper ways than I have before what it means to truly depend upon Christ. And so I think their mercy and their compassion, even amidst the church's failures along these issues of power and a struggle to really embrace the truth of our weakness was born out of a continued attentiveness that, hey, well, I'm still on a journey as well, right? Like yeah. I'm, the Lord is still doing a work in me. Yeah, and um, you know we've all been around people who sort of falsely humbly say, say that, you know, sort of like, sure, oh, right. you know, it's not, it's not me, it's all God. Um, <laughs> right. But these 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 men and women, they have a genuine humility. Like they're uh, they've they've learned weakness in a really powerful way. So maybe my last question for each of the two of you is, you know, as you're like, you're talking, let's, let's say now this question is for pastors and leaders in the Christian world, or maybe even outside of the Christian world, 
what are some practices we can do to release uh, the dragon kind of desire for power and embrace the way of love and weakness? What are some tangible um, spiritual practices that you've learned uh, that help you let go? Yeah, yeah, good, great question. I'll, I'll start and let Kyle kind of pick it up from there. I think maybe where I'll begin is just by speaking a little more directly to um, leadership and even pastoral ministry. Of course, that, that being my kind of immediate vocational context. And I think one of the things that, that Eugene really surfaced for us that has been uh, incredibly helpful for me is really the practice of being relentlessly personal mm-hmm. and relational and uh, genuinely seeking to cultivate relationships and friendships that aren't uh, kind of bound by the structures of authority and power that my pastoral office brings. You know, because the, the, the truth is being a pastor fundamentally means you are in a position of power and influence. Yeah. Right? We can kind of eschew that, but that's kind of a fool's errand. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot of settings in our culture where you can stand in front of a group of people and, you know, d- and depending on your ecclesial environment <laughs> here, talk for 20 to 20 minutes to an hour, right? Depending on, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but nonetheless, there's not a lot of settings where you can stand up in a room full of people, whatever the size group, nonetheless, is attentive to you and your words. And they're very much um, recognizing you have a position of authority and power in, in speaking, right? And, and that's not to mention the other areas in which in the church life, the pastor has authority and power. And so these things are kind of true and even proper to the vocation. But what gets created in that is a certain kind of relationship is established. And if we're not careful um, within the life of the church, the the pastor um, can kind of sit in a position apart from genuine relationships, genuine friendships. And I think oftentimes this is even proposed as a healthy and appropriate model, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah. You need to... need to be really cautious here about dual roles and have healthy boundaries and, you know, and okay, well, you know, th- there's some wisdom in, in that, of course, depending on what we're talking about. But this idea that pastors ought not have friendships, genuine relationships in which they are known in truth and in love, in which they can be vulnerable, in which they can be honest about their own weaknesses. And of course, we have to be wise and discerning and choosing those proper relationships and contexts within the life of the church. But um, I think what Eugene really surfaced f- for us was the need for pastors to really be intentional, really as a spiritual practice in seeking to cultivate those kind of relationships within the life of the church, mm-hmm. that we need to have relationships within our immediate church context in which where we really are known and we have more peer-to-peer relationships and friendships where we can be truthful and open about our weaknesses and, and be met there in love. And I think secondarily, it's also being committed to having personal uh, relationships with people outside the life of the church. And those who are actually thoroughly unimpressed with the fact that I'm a pastor. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And those are actually really important relationships to cultivate. And again, at least in my own life and ministry, I've seen that it's very easy to uh, not only only have, you know, relationships with kind of just Christians as a pastor, but even just fellow pastors or, or kind of leaders. Yeah. Right? And so this is another kind of push against that um, is to say, I'm going to 
intentionally pursue relationships and settings in which I can cultivate relationships with, with outsiders, with, with those who don't go to my church and who aren't even Christians, with those who, you know, if, if I sat down next to them <coughs> in a coffee shop and they asked me what I do, would not at all be impressed by my answer being I'm a pastor. In fact, it might be cause for them to not want to talk to me much <laughs> <Right>. longer. <laughs> and it's, it's those kinds of relationships that, that, that kind of um, service a certain kind of grounding, right? And, and, and that there's a humanizing reality to that, that, that now invites me into a, a kind of relational reality that, that isn't, again, fundamentally kind of bound up in these hierarchical structures and that kind of recognizes a certain position of authority that I have, but, but actually demands a certain kind of relationality and, and a meeting and a knowing of one another that isn't, that isn't based on those things fundamentally. And so for me, even since writing this book, I've, those have been actually some intentional practices for me within the life of the church, cultivating friendships. Um, that's good. And outside of the life of the church, cultivating relationships with, with people who, who aren't impressed with the fact that I'm a pastor. <laughs> yeah. And maybe I would ask or, or add not for their salvation, right? But for yours, right? I mean, like, don't build a relationship with someone outside of the church so that you can get them to believe what you do, right? I mean, that's not what you're talking about, right? You're talking yeah, about... Yeah, that there's a, there's a, there's a, there is an, an inherent value in uh, having genuine relationships, right? right? And um, of reciprocity, right. you know, in, in which I'm showing up in the relationship and the truth of who I am and even bringing my weaknesses to bear in that and being vulnerable yeah. and meeting them in that. Beautiful. Yeah. And so, you know, I'll follow up on that then, you know, let me take a little different direction actually in light of what, J what Jamin said, you know, one of the, one of the practices I think we should be giving ourselves to that is fundamental in this regard is we need to practice utter honesty in prayer specifically. Mm -hmm. As my spiritual mentor um, often says, prayer is not a place to be good. It's a place to be honest. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the one of the things that happens, and I think this is one of the kind of roles of silence or wordlessness in prayer, is that our heart begins to kind of vibrate in the presence of God because it, it wants to control, it wants to hide, it wants to cover, it wants to it wants to feel a certain kind of way. And in God's presence, the truth of ourself comes out. Yeah. And for many of us, we still think that um, even if we never think it consciously, deep down, we still think we have to be good to be in God's presence, that we have to atone for our sins there, that we we have to somehow achieve something to be received instead of trusting that it's in Christ alone that we're in that place. Yeah. And that Christ, our great high priest, as the author of Hebrews says, has gone beyond the veil as the very anchor of our soul. And, and in him, we are, our life is now hid, as Paul tells us. And so it, prayer, you know, if, if, you're, if we're embracing power that is antithetical to kingdom power, so power and strength for control in, in our Christian life, in the church life, in leadership, whatever else, that'll almost always follow and flow from a dishonest prayer life. Hmm. That it's actually quite difficult to live that way when you, the truth of yourself is being known by God and you are breaking that open and holding it before him. And so I think as a practice of, of 
being known in God's presence deeply and, and, and truthfully. And one of the things that leads to is, you know, when some of the stories Jamin and I tell about, you know, gnarly stuff that's happened in the church, you know, years ago, that would have just led me to both anger and, and probably, um, a certain posturing against that person. You know, I, I, my view of that person, they would be, I I would just want to kind of tear them apart. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now I look at those things and my, the first response is, is more like, yeah, I could have done that. Yep. <laughs> you know, exactly. Right circumstances. Yeah, yep. sure. Okay. Yeah. You know, and, and really getting to see like, I, I get it. Like I can, and I can now, you know, when a pastor cheats the New York times bestseller list to get their book on it, I, I know the, the decisions, the, the 30 yeah. decisions that were made up to that point. Yep. I, I know how one could convince themselves that was good. Yep. And so now I think that, that we, we have, that there's a certain kind of posture in prayer that needs to lead us into those things so that we're no longer turning to con- condemning folks, but this leads us. And again, to like the sages, to joy, mm-hmm. to generosity, mm-hmm. to vulnerability. Oh man, I love both of those responses. I really do. And, mm-hmm. um, and especially from the background of sort of the big church background and how easy it is to throw stones at that. Mm-hmm. But then there's a, there's, there's an identical way of, of using your tiny little church as holier than, than, mm-hmm. you know, the, totally. the big ones yeah. because it's pure somehow because it's small or something. Mm. <laughs> and it's really the same. I and mean, it's really the same dragon, right? It's the same pride mm. is the same issue. Um, so thank you for that. You guys so beautiful. Uh, the way of the dragon or the way of the lamb searching for Jesus path of power in a church that has abandoned it. Jamin Goggin and Kyle Strobel. I'm going to put uh, your book on the show notes. Um, so I encourage anyone, especially anyone in ministry of any kind, I really encourage you to get this book. Um, I'm working my way through it. And let me tell you, like I, I told these guys when I first met them, I, I, I sort of said, thanks, I think, for writing this book. <laughs> um, it's painful to read. And then uh, Jamin's response right back was, well, it was painful to write. And I believe that uh, because you guys, uh, both of you uh, drip with um, like you've been there. Um, and, and, and so so thank you for that. And um so we're out of time, um, but man, you guys, thanks for your grace. Thanks for uh, spending an hour with me. I, I appreciate your work in the world, and um, um, yeah, thank you. So I, I so end much, the podcast buddy. every every time mm-hmm. by uh, just having this. So it's sort of a mantra um, of humanity, um, and it's we're dust and we're breath. We're limited and we're limitless. We're human and we're holy and we're in it together. Um, so may that be our benediction. You guys, thanks so much um, for being on the show. Thanks so much, man. So good being with you. Good to yeah. be with you, brother. Okay. Peace, my friends. Hey, everybody. I'm Steve Weens, and this is my podcast where I explore humanity, spirituality, and mystery one word at a time. For more about my work, my writing, my preaching, my books, and all that good stuff, head on over to steveweens.com.